At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, you know, like I have maybe like 30 minutes to myself a day and mm-hmm. that's when I take my subway shits. Sure, me too. I actually save them up too. It's cool. <laughs> I just have a brief window for my SSs and I just take care of them. <laughs> I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And I'm, I'm a, a writer. writer, but... Welcome to I'm a Writer, but today we have Christian Tabordo. Christian has published seven books, most recently The Apology, a novel, and the collection of short fiction Ghost Engine. He lives with his family in Chicago and teaches at Roosevelt University. Welcome, Christian. Welcome. Thank you, Lindsay and Alex. Uh, usually uh, with, a, with a reading, I would just start from the beginning of the book because my books can be kind of involved, but this is a, a podcast for writers, so I'm going to read my favorite <laughs> passage from the book. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, but that requires just a little tiny bit of context. Um, the narrator is a guy named Mike Long. He has a lot of names, but we'll go with Mike Long. Um, his father, blame, he blames his father uh, for ruining his life uh, over what he thought was a sexual harassment claim uh, when he was in high school. And his father was a high school teacher of English. Uh, the, the narrator, Mike Long has recently learned that there was never any such charge um, his father just kind of acted weird toward a girl that he was driving home when she was drunk from a party. And uh, the father is now an opiate addict. Um, so I'll read, I'll read here. Harvard dad, or at least Vassar. I could have gone to Vassar, I seethe. He turned his head slowly from side to side, unsurprised but aware that I, or at least someone was in the room. Do you know what kind of doors Vassar can open for a young philosopher, I said. He opened his eyes. It took them a long time to focus, longer to find me. And when they did, they didn't show any sign of recognition, much less concern. Do you, I said, raising the volume. And when he didn't answer, I brought the hammer down. Neither do I, because I never went to Vassar. I could tell I'd been recognized, but the sheer effort it took had me losing steam. I tried to keep it going. Or Amherst, or Bates, or Bowden, or... I stumbled, mumbled, at least Bucknell. I was capable of going on longer. I had memorized the US News and World Report rankings every year since I'd graduated high school and could recite them in numerical or alphabetical order. Obviously, this time I had chosen alphabetical, but my father had heard all that before, was used to it by now, already preparing to dismiss me. 
What he didn't know was that I had new evidence, an eyewitness account, a personal confession, and I had to get to it before he went back to watching unproduced movies on his eyelids. I saw her today, I said. His eyes flashed suddenly. I could tell he was fully present and that somehow he knew who I meant. He glazed over on purpose, but I had him. Who, he said. Don't play dumb, I said. He closed his eyes, and at first I thought he'd managed to nod off again. But when he brought his sagging arm up to his clammy forehead, I could tell he was thinking. He finally spoke. Son, I dreamed of permanent revolution, but what I got was perpetual war. It wasn't my choice to make. Ever since the doctors got him hooked, he'd sounded more like an oracle than a philosopher, but I could usually get some sense out of him. She said nothing happened, I said. She said he didn't do anything. He replied more quickly than I expected. She told you the facts, son, but not the truth. I did not lay a hand on her, nor did I say a word. I did not even look much her way, just a glance in the mirror every now and then. She was draped across the back seat, intoxicated and vulnerable. Her vulnerability did not appeal to me, son. For me, the strong-willed girl of slightly above average intelligence, stone sober if a little run down and irritable at the tail end of a long school day, seeking out ways to argue the intersection of classic literature and current affairs, Hemingway and abortion, Elliot and sex work, James Joyce and coprophilia. That was the version of her that filled my mind as I drove her drunken husk home. In my head, she was the initiator, and the things she initiated were glorious but unspeakable, and so I'll speak no more of them, son, except to say that at the height of our imaginary passion, I looked into the mirror to refresh my memory of the actual thing and met her eyes, or rather her eyes' reflections. She was staring at me as aggressively as she had in my fantasies, but her gaze did not express desire, son. It expressed awareness, as though my own eyes were projecting the scene in my brain out into the mirror where she could see it in reverse. She knew, son, not vaguely, but in high definition detail. She knew the placement of every limb, every appendage, the velocity and viscosity of each drop of sweat and fluid in our bodies in my mind's eye. And she knew that I knew that she knew because the look of disgust slipped briefly into horror before ossifying, or the look of awareness slipped briefly into horror before ossifying into disgust. A look of disgust she maintained defiantly until the very moment we pulled up in front of her parents' house, son. That look told me she would scorch my earth if she could, and I was impressed, aroused, and devastated. She did say you were a little weird on the drive home, I said. That's just the thing, son, he said. It wasn't weird. It was perfectly normal. It was the way of things. If anything, her acknowledgement of it was weird. That was the in innovation, a tactic only, son, indicating a new strategy, a nuclear option, that of, not, not, that of not allowing me or any man, I'd guess, to imagine those things in her presence or to delight in the belief that she knew and could do nothing about it. The only thing, soldier, was to retreat. But our retreat was not tactical. It was strategic, endless retreat. I have consulted with the Joint Chiefs of Staff and we are in complete agreement. It was ironic, him using this extended military metaphor, considering he dodged the Vietnam draft by wearing lace panties to his exam, pubic hair trimmed in the shape of a heart. He'd admitted to me when I came back to my dorm room on September 11, 2001. He told me those methods wouldn't work anymore and he was gonna have to shoot me in the foot. I was all ready to head over to Walmart and buy a gun. I managed to convince him to wait until I was at least called up. Now here he was talking like he was the commander in chief himself, the old man at the diner, his trusted war cabinet. Isn't that a kind of grandiose way to talk about the battle of the sexes, I said. Is that what you think, son? The battle of the sexes? What I'm talking about is the war on terror, and I am terror, son, which I suppose makes you terror's son. 
It was the oracle of the temple of Apollo at Delphi that declared Socrates the wisest man alive. Here's the thing about oracles. They were just old ladies in caves getting high off ethylene fumes that rose up from a crack in the ground and rambling. There was no reason to listen to them, just like there was no reason to listen to my father. Thanks. That's one of my favorite parts in the book. I'm so glad that you read that part. Same. Uh, I loved that. It was one of the, it was the hardest I laughed in the whole book, actually. <laughs> yes. The, the lace panties and the pubic hair and <laughs> offering to shoot his son in the foot. <laughs> it was the way of things killed me. <laughs> but it's also like, it's also one of the, the moments that you can kind of see Mike um, more fully because he's interacting with someone who truly knows him mm-hmm. or, or did know him um, before he descended into <laughs> Um, opioid dependency. Um, But I kind of wanted to talk about, it's like a, it's like a two-parter. I want to talk about where these characters came from, like what, you know, what was the, the the opening scene in your mind or how did you get to these characters? And also I want to talk about then how you decided on the structure and how um, Mike gives us a little information, tells us he's not going to tell us. And then he tells us, um, and he backtracks, um, and then he surges forward. Um, and I, I just want to, I want to hear you talk about those things. <laughs> um, I may need you, you to remind me of the second part, cause this is okay. complicated. Like the, so the first part is where the characters came from. Uh, it's complicated because I wrote this book in 2009, I think. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> so, remember that? Remember 2009? Yeah. Right. I mean, you and I were label mates. It was, it was a wonderful time. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, so uh, basically everything I, in, to this day, everything I do starts with a sentence, honestly. Um, and I had this line in my head. Uh, if you really want to talk about this stalking business, it was just, you know, it was, I was like, that, that seems like somewhere to start. And so I started, you know what I mean? Um, and, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I proceed from sentence to sentence to sentence, but like the, the truth is some of this was informed by, you know, uh, the fact that I worked in offices, you know what I mean? I'd, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd been an adjunct professor from like 2004 to 2007. And so like, I started this book when I had started a new office job, but the thing was, is that the office job that I had was wonderful. It was really great. The only direct inspiration from this uh from that job was i make a lot of jokes about new yorker cartoons and um in the in the in the actual office that i worked in i worked with this uh now very successful comedian named meg favreau um and she had a she had a new yorker calendar where it was like it was a cartoon a day and she would give me the cartoon each day and ask me to rewrite it and uh, so that's that's a riff that ended up in the novel. But in general, like, the, the the toxicity of this office environment was inspired by a job that I had right out of grad school. Um, I, I won't be specific about this job, um, but it was like it was. I worked for a a, a religious nonprofit. <laughs> I'll say that much. Okay. Mm-hmm. It, I was I was like sexually harassed in the hiring process. Oh God. What the fuck. <laughs> So, <laughs> <laughs> and like, like I actually, I, I left um, when they, they, they published this just a completely insane document that, that um, uh, uh, so I can't be specific. It suggested a lot of ways yeah. 
And so I, I like gave my notice on that day, you know what I mean? And so, so like I was taking these like kind of disparate office experiences and de describing being the odd man out, but also making my narrator culpable for being the odd man out. And that's how, that's how all those dynamics were set up basically. At, a, at like 10 pages in, I was like, I'm going to try to write the Lolita of office stalker novels. And that's how I, I stepped in. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I have um, to say, I used to work for an office and um, our HR person was um, interesting. And we, <laughs> we were hiring someone who was a volunteer firefighter and he was attractive. And she called him up and she was like, hi. Hey, I have a fire that I need you to put out. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Just kidding. You're hired. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, see, that's, that's a little worse than what I had, but like, a, like they had an actual, like a, a headhunter, like a woman whose job was to hire for business, like an independent headhunter at this first job that I'm talking about. And she, she would talk about how great it was that I was married. And then at one point she got into like, she, she actually said, that I would really uh, butch up the office, which I thought oh, was no. I'm not a particularly macho dude. You look like a Norse god. And I was like, okay, okay, I'll take oh. it. You know, like, um, but, you know, it's, you know I feel like weird things happen in these offices, you know? Uh, and, and I also never felt scared or intimidated. It was just a very strange experience. Um, but with regard to structure, um, that, that happens naturally for me. It was like, um, I, I didn't think about making it a one week story. And then when I realized that he was going day by day, I was like, it'll be a one week story. And then I was like, I won't acknowledge that until he realizes that it's going day by day. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I also realized that he had to lie about a lot of stuff. So I made that very explicit. And then, so that's why you have these weird reversals and stuff like that. Yeah. I feel like it goes hand in hand with who he is. Um, I feel like he's the most unreliable narrator I've ever encountered <laughs> ever. Like to the point where I was asking Alex, like, is any of it real? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> there's that wonderful moment, like in the middle where he decides, yes, I do exist. Uh -huh. And, you know, and, and so I, I just, how did his character specifically come to you? Like how, and how did you stay with him as you went? I, I think he's like the, I mean, I make a lot of jokes on social media about how all of my characters are endorsed by me and how, you know what I mean? But <laughs> I think the narrator of this one is he's, he's the very worst version of me. You know what I mean? It's, and um, he has like a lot of the, a lot of things, like I, I, I was very fascinated by philosophy as a young man. And I remember like, there's a scene in the novel set in a high school classroom where they're debating abortion and the narrator starts spouting off about Descartes. Um, I think therefore I am and whatnot. And I, I never did that, but that's what I was thinking in those classes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I like, um, so, I, so it's like, I, I was like, I was taking like the, the worst thoughts I have and making them even worse. And then also trying to find some way to make him sympathetic because like, it, you know, I, I, um, I don't, um, uh, like uh, obviously this guy's like parallels parallels mine in no way at all except that he if you if you know the geography of philadelphia he lives in the exact same apartment i lived in at the time i wrote the the novel but i happen to be happily married and you know not having any conflict in the office <laughs> there's something about this book christian that Lindsay and i 
it, even though you said it was written in 2009, it feels of a piece with kind of the recent, you know, like we, you could, I think you could almost call this guy an incel. You could, (laughs) and it feels, it, it, it feels like a modern type of man that is discussed kind of all the time. And not to say that this kind of guy wasn't always discussed, a kind of obsessive, lacking man but um it's so interesting to me that um the level of single-minded pursuit that that mike takes on throughout the novel and i was wondering if you had any works of fiction that you were kind of thinking about as you were going through uh i was thinking of tampa um Mm. just the kind of the kind of constant leveling up and doubling down and intensity and just (laughs) lunacy. Um, But I was, I really wanted to know, uh, you know, if there was, if there, if you had any kind of touchstone works you were thinking about. Yeah. I mean, Tampa is a great reference that, that came out after I was done with like, I would, I had had uh, offers on this book before Tampa came out, but I, I didn't feel like it was done. And so there, there, it was, you, you guys mentioned uh, Stephen Florida earlier on. Right. And, uh, let's be clear, they're very different books and, and Gabe uh, Habish did a, like a wonderful job of making this entirely sympathetic character who was also driven by compulsion, you know what I mean? And I think that was maybe the book that like finally got me to figure out just a, a few tweaks at the end. Oh, interesting. But my... Um, my impetus was probably like I like I read I remember reading uh Gordon Lish's Dear Mr. Capote um Mm. when I was starting the book and that was a big influence um uh and then Paget Powell's Edisto Mm. um which is because because they're they're these like heavily voice driven works that also uh focus on like compulsions that are not um not particularly necessarily dangerous. Well, dear Mr. Capote is dangerous, but, but like they're not necessarily dangerous so much as like socially just completely ridiculous. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, and so it's like these the kind of like place where the voice recognizes that the that the behavior doesn't make sense, but it but between the two you create a person who does make sense. If that's mm-hmm. sense. Um, and then and then of course, um, no one ever believes me when I say this, but it really is like Nabokov is always behind all of this for me. So in a good way. I, I mean, like it's become more tense. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> uh, it, like the, he does these characters who are so, uh, so fixated. And yet you believe that they're fixated on a thing they're fixated on. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So like, uh, I, I, I think the second ap- epigraph, in the book is from Nabokov's despair. And it's like any reasonable reader, the, the, the plot is this guy finds his own doc, doppelganger and decides to kill him to fake his own death. Um, but it's just very clear when you're reading it that the, the doppelganger is not really a doppelganger. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? and, um, but, but it's also clear that the narrator believes that, you know, and that's, that's the kind of thing that I was trying to do here. Mm. It's so interesting the way that some of the ancillary characters function within this novel because it really wouldn't work. I feel like unless you had KC operating in the text as he does as kind of 
a ballast on Mike, but also Casey is the character that Mike uses to kind of check himself. It's like, well, you know, I may be, <laughs> I may be going and checking out this, this lady's apartment kind of staking out where she lives, but I'm not drinking 40 beers at an Applebee's and <laughs> saying the wrong thing. It's like, it's funny how there's constantly this, um, this measuring stick, you know, that, 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 uh, that Mike is using uh, for his behavior. And I was wondering if modulating his behavior was something that was difficult for you. Did you originally have it more extreme, less extreme? Was it the kind of thing that it was difficult to kind of calibrate as you were drafting? Yeah, I mean, it, it actually wasn't so much while I was drafting it as once I realized what I'd written. Right. The thing is, is I mean, I feel like this is as close as I'm likely to come. I mean, there's like I've had one other book that I thought might have any real chance in the in the like in the marketplace. You know what I mean? And this one is, I feel like, readable. You know what I mean? But what ends up happening is, is that it doesn't it doesn't have a hook. And so that, that kind of dynamic you're describing is the way I was balancing and creating tension, mm. but it's not something that you could write on back cover copy or something like that. Mm. And so like, to me, it's, it, it's what makes the book function, but at the same time, it's not something that anybody wants to talk about, you know, wants to talk about it. like, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, so like I, I didn't have a hook for this one. It's not like, it's not anything particularly shocking or particularly like sensational, but that, that, like, that was exactly what I was trying to do to keep um, the tension going. Like my, my friend, Adam Levin has this metaphor, like that you're trying to, you're trying to make, maintain optimal tension. Right. And in my, in my worst drafts of any book, like I ratchet the tension up too high. You know what I mean? I, I make people cringe. I, I make, you know, I'm constantly making puns and jokes and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, there's just too much tension in the book. And this one, I feel like I, I, I feel like I found a balance, but also that I have no way to sell it to anybody because I'm like, I have, I have balanced the personal tension in a book. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's interesting that you said that because before you came on, Lindsay and I were saying of your work that I've read, I think this is the third book of yours that I've read. I feel like this is the most approachable sentence to sentence. Mm -hmm. And yet if you were to just describe what the book was about to somebody, it might be the least like <laughs> accessible in some way. I wow. feel like sentence to sentence, it's the opposite, but I feel like it's, it's a harder, it's a harder sell when I'm just trying <laughs> to describe it to somebody. Yeah. It's like, it's exactly. It's every sentence is so tight. It's so funny. And it's, a book about these two competing impotent poles of masculinity. <laughs> like I was thinking it's kind of like, you know, in, at the end of frozen, they, it's not a love story. It's a, it's the story of two sisters. And at the end of this, it's like, Oh, it's not about April at all. It's about Casey and Mike, <laughs> you know? And, um, and I, I, like, I had, I thought about that a lot because I, I didn't know what to make of April, because in some ways she just kind of pops in to fuck with them and pops out again. And her, she's kind of baffling and big titted, you know, and it's like, and, and so in some ways I'm like, okay, is this, is this actually how she is? Cause I'm only seeing her in the way mm. that Mike's describing her. Mm -hmm. um, and, and 
and she, you know, she comes in and out and she's kind of hard to understand <laughs> in some ways. Like she likes him. Oh no, she doesn't like him. Um, and so when I started thinking about it in terms of like, like, like Alex was saying, um, how Casey and Mike play off of each other, but in the end are both failures. <laughs> then I was like, okay, I can, I can kind of get on board with that, but I would love to hear how you, how you were seeing the, you know, April, um, and to a lesser extent, like Bonnie and an even lesser extent, Rita. Um, well, I mean, the, the, so sometimes I'm hesitant to go quite into my thought process, but in, like in this case, I mean, like, I, I really meant it that, I mean, those like April and Bonnie are weird because they are, um, to me that the secret authors of the book, like mm. it's oh. like, uh, they're there to, they, they they're there to expose uh, Mike and Casey for who they are. Mm. But beyond that, like, I actually mean that it's a plot that they concocted to expose them for who they are. Oh, so, I see. So, um, the, the, so that, like, that, the reason that father scene that I read earlier is, like, the clincher for me is that, I mean that to suggest that that was actually a crucial moment, not just for the, this father who's a ridiculous character, but for these women who go on to to lead semi you know fruitful lives as 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 far as you can call somebody you know setting up the destruction of other people <laughs> <laughs> but like the the point is is that there's like a um they're like avenging angels in a sense to to me mm. um, but the 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 thing is is that I didn't want to put that as the front of the text because that's not like um I don't know how interesting that would be dramatically you know what I mean so yeah, and so, I feel like it would like it, it would cheapen it in a way you know yeah. it would just kind of be like it would it would it would almost make them even more um stereotype you know like they they would just feel less real um but that's so interesting i'm i'm, I'm glad i asked you that question because um but cause I, that I, opens I, up a lot this is this is shows how you know ridiculous i can be is that this is inspired by the the pl- not the plot of the show knight rider but the, the 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 arc of the series, where oh. uh, like Michael Knight's co-stars, like David Hasselhoff's co-stars, would come and go, and so like the showing up of these different beautiful women who seem to be in control but don't also make sense as characters, um, it, it was because like the, these women were not getting paid and supported in the same way that that David Hasselhoff was. And oh so, my gosh mirrors that that arc and so all the characters are named after characters from Knight Rider um which I would expect everybody to know because Knight Rider is such an important document you know (laughs) I wasn't allowed to watch it but I will you know I'll heal that uh, inner child inside me and I'll I'll find a way (laughs) Christian one thing you've you alluded to earlier in the conversation and it's actually something you, you tweeted out recently and uh Lindsay and I were, were talking about you as a writer over the past week as we were reading the book. And, you know, I said to her, I was like, Christian's one of the best writers we've had on this show. And it was so interesting to me because you sent out this tweet and I'm just going to read it real quick here. Whenever I'm writing a book, I hit a point where I know it'll be unacceptable by mainstream standards. Anyway, hit that point on the book I'm working on today. You can decide for yourself when it comes out on a micro press in 10 years. And I texted it, him that this morning and I was like, we have to ask him about, we this. have to ask you about it because I think you're such a unique, you know, such an idiosyncratic writer 
anyone who's familiar with your work, it sticks with them. And you, you know, you teach in an MFA program, you run an MFA program, you're in a unique position to be the kind of writer you are, I feel like, and be the kind of person in the writing world you are. And I just, the, that tweet was so interesting to me because I was wondering if that was something you truly believe. And if so, I was just curious why. Um, I mean, uh, yes, I, I, I mean, I, I, most of the time I'm fucking around on Twitter and I was still fucking around a little bit. Of course, of course. But like, uh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, um, I have deliberately crafted a life that lets me write what I want. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel bad for my friends and peers when they're, when they're, when what they want to write is, you know, uh, blocked by what they have to write. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's like, there, there are very clear moments to me in almost every book. I mean, this one was, was a, was a case in point because like I, I knew the premise of the book just would, would not appeal to most people. It's I mean, like, like I said earlier, it doesn't really have a hook because you could, you could have a, you know, a bad character who, uh, who, if there's something sensational about it, you could pitch it. You know what I mean? But if I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I'm gonna follow this bad character, um, there's not a lot, there's not a lot to be said for that. And there's, but, but like, I mean, what I was writing yesterday when I, when I tweeted that, like I, the, the the chapter that I wrote was like, I was like, this is clearly the point where this book diverges from what can be published in the mainstream. Like, <laughs> but can um, you tell us why? Like what happened in that chapter? Um, I mean, it was, it's, it's very, very complicated, but I, maybe maybe if I tell you that the, the phrase Olga's vulva is repeated over and over again. Um, <laughs> Listen, I'm at Scribner, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> okay did you not know that we're buying for scrivener now Listen, christian that's I, what this is yeah, i don't have i don't is. have an office or a phone number there but, but I this mean, is a pitch meeting so <laughs> no i mean i i i think and i want to i don't want to interrupt you but i feel like i think those things about myself all the time and then i and then um and it's because i'm like trying to get ahead of myself do you feel like it's you trying to get ahead and like or do you i don't know i i just i feel like that can't be it no, you, you know, like that, that, ha- that can't be true is what I, well, hope I, mean, and wish. I, would, I would hope it's not, you know what I mean? I'm going to finish the book and, and truthfully, I mean, there's also a coping mechanism aspect to that too, where it's like, yeah. um, you know, when, when my first novel came out, it was just like, it was shit on so hard that mm. like, I like, it, it was like, people were, the internet didn't even barely exist at the time. You know, it came out in like 2005 and like, the, the shit that was said about this book, I was like, how did you even find it? You know what I mean? God. <laughs> and what uh. was that it was really, really liberating for me. I was like, that means my next book will never be published, which means I can write anything I want, you know? Um, and really like the, the worst and most frustrating period of my career was, uh, I had a book I, I had mentioned earlier that Lindsay and I were label mates at one point. I put out a book with uh, Featherproof that, the awful possibilities. Yeah, I mean, iconic cover in my mind, honestly. <laughs> they did a great job, right? And Featherproof did a beautiful job of publishing the book, which helped me in the sense that I, I got uh, 
you know, some national attention that was positive, which had, which was relatively new for me. And uh, when agents started calling, like I, I heard from like three William Morris Endeavor agents on the oh. day of the, at Publishers Weekly Review. You know what I mean? Oh my God. And my wife was pregnant with our son on that day. You know what I mean? It was like, and so I had never thought of making money from fiction. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly I was getting attention for this very, very weird and gnarly book. And I was like, oh, well, now I have to consider the possibility that I could do weird and gnarly shit and also make money. You know what I mean? Well, like, uh, it turned out that I couldn't. Like, they all they all came back to me and were like, no, you're fucking weird. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh. So, like, I feel very liberated when, I, when I'm pushing up against the, like, not, not like I'm trying not to be accepted, you know what I mean? But, like, mm. um, like when I acknowledge to myself that what I want to write is the things I want to write, then I feel like liberated, you know? Mm. Can you put into words what it is you want to write? Um, I know this is like the, the meanest question and the hardest question, but if you can, I, I would love to. The very first thing I would say is I want to be funny. Like I'm trying to be funny. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the second is that there is some, I, I, my parents were both Presbyterian ministers. Um, I am not pushing Presbyterian or proselytizing. Well, like there is something very, very deeply Calvinist about me that sees the world in a certain way that I want to like uh, express the kind of like the, the the nature of humans as I understand it. That like I'm not even intentionally doing that, but it is part of what I do. You know? mm-hmm. But funny is the important part for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see both of those things <laughs> definitely in the apology. Um, and I just remembered the the construction worker part, which is one of the strangest <laughs> but most beautiful parts of the book. Oh my god! Um, that was the autobiographical. That, are like, you serious? Uh, oh so, god! Uh, I combined two things, like that, like the 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 job that I hated so desperately that that I alluded to earlier on. I used to go down to the the mezzanine, and there was this like construction worker who who ate like that guy. But then, like later that same afternoon, I, I watched a guy jump from a skyscraper <gasps> across the street, and it shows up in a lot of my writing because um, it was weird and bizarre. And and the only thing, I think the only thing that I explicitly took from that first job was like my my managing editor was going down to take pictures of the the corpse. After. Oh my <laughs> like, god! Jesus. Yeah, it's it grotesque. Yes. Well, I just, I, that came to mind as you were talking about funny and also wanting to deeply show humanity, the humanity of, uh-huh. <laughs> of those around us and these characters that are in your head. Um, that just felt like a moment. And, and, you know, Mike goes back to it again and again, both in his thinking and, and also physically <laughs> stepping on remains. Um, that, that also happened just. So- oh no, oh, Christian. I mean, it was January. It was like they, they couldn't they couldn't yeah. spray it. Was like, couldn't they put some sawdust over it? Good God! <laughs> yeah, sorry. Am uh, I ruining this podcast? <laughs> no, no, no. This, this is, is the good shit. No, this this is, is the good shit. This, this is what like we call the hook. Bursting. Yeah, <laughs> this is what we call the hook. <laughs> the uh, the moment that I laughed the hardest reading the apology. Other the moment that you read actually was one of my favorites. But when April also starts peeing in. The, the elevator i was i like closed the book and was just like shaking my head laughing i was like you motherfucker i was like 
this is this is what I'm looking for in life. So I I never fold pages in books. I just find it disrespectful. But I had to remind myself to bring up manger twat <laughs> because I I I always do a lot of reading in the in the as I'm sitting in the car while my daughter's asleep outside of my boys' school. And I was, I got to that part and I was like, I'm going to like start screaming with laughter and she's asleep in the backseat. I was dying. I'm going to have some manger twat. I was like, our listeners, you need to get this book just so you can get to that point. It was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. Christian, I'm, um, I'm sorry to go back to this, but I'm so curious about what you tell your students about writing freely writing the books they want to write and yet kind of balancing that with either making some money from their writing or I'm just curious how you approach that with your students because you have carved out such a a unique writing life for yourself and I'm just wondering the kind of things that you tell your students I think that's a like that's something that I, I've honestly never been asked. So thank you, Alex. But, but like, it's um, my, my first thesis student at Roosevelt, I think you guys might've heard of her as a, a local writer named Jessica Ann. Uh, oh yeah. Who wrote this. Yeah, book. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, her, her first book was her thesis, uh, A Manual for Nothing. Um, and that ended up, it's, it's funny because she and I were talking, I was like, she said, you know, you're, you're weird and I'm weird. So we should work together. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I'm never going to push anybody to be weird. You know what I mean? But like, I was also like, this is, you know, this is going to, if this is going to be your first book, you have to realize that, that like the first book is the chance to make money. You know what I mean? And, uh, and you don't seem to, to care. You seem to want to write a weird book. So like, we'll, we'll do this, you know? And it was, it was a in, intensely positive experience because she ended up, you know, being reviewed by, uh stephanie burton the new yorker you know oh my god um, so uh and and it was it, it seemed to have been a good experience and as the book was coming out i was like yeah like yeah assume nothing will happen but also assume that like it could be like some weird richard brodigan thing where you turn into like a hippie millionaire you know what i mean <laughs> but i do talk to my students about that and I, I tell them what the market is very very realistically and i i tell them like, you know, there's, there is nobody in my program that tries to emulate me as a writer or a, a, like a, a career or whatever, you know what I mean? And so like, you know, I have, you know, students, you know, I have a student publishing a novel this, this year, um, uh, Chanel Galloway, Galloway Calvert, who's a wonderful writer. And her novel is basically like a, uh, a literary western set in the depression era um that is just gutting and beautiful but is nothing like anything i write and then, mm. and then my last thesis advisee uh, a woman named andy bisson uh wrote a a, a, a pirate fantasy novel and I, I absolutely believe it will be published and so the thing is is that i my core as a teacher is to say i believe you as a have a vision and I also don't believe there's any such thing as the model of a good book. Mm. And so my job is to, when I see what you're writing, try to help you fulfill the vision that you have rather than try to make it weird or good or any, any weird adjective. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
when you're writing and you're, mm-hmm. and you're, you're doing so in this liberated, you know, this liberated state, because you, you, you've come to this, this point where I feel like a lot of writers, um, if they keep staying in the game, will hopefully eventually get, mm-hmm. but you've, it seems like you've gotten there sooner. Um, where it's like, I'm just going to write whatever I want uh-huh. because that's what I have to give the world. Um, like, who are you thinking of as you're writing? Is there like, are you writing for someone or a certain type of someone or, you know, like what keeps, I guess, like what keeps you going? Yeah. I mean, like, I'm, I don't know. Like I'm like, I'm, I'm writing, I'm writing to please myself for the most part. Um, you know, it's it, like, uh, I hadn't, I, I'd, I'd only done one reading from the apology before today. Oh, um, wow. And it was like at my online book launch back in November. And, you know, I just read from the beginning because I was like, this is, you don't need any context. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, and tonight I wanted to, to think about reading something that I, you know, that, that was deep in the book that I liked. And I wanted to try it out on my wife, Catherine. And um, it, it, like, it reminded me that Catherine hadn't read the book. Catherine doesn't read my books. <laughs> which I, <laughs> Catherine's rad, by the way. She loves both Lindsay and Alex. Oddly, it's very, very weird that you guys are hosting this podcast because I think you guys are two her two favorite contemporary writers. Oh, <laughs> Catherine! Also, say hi to her for me. It's been a long time. It's been a decade. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but you know, it's it's like, you know, I I know that there. Are, I believe that there are people that want to read this stuff, but it, but I, I don't worry too much about it. And then, as far as like models for that, it's like. Uh, I was often confused when I was in grad school um, because um, like George Saunders was one of my professors and he was great, just like wonderful. But he also did think about what the audience would think about things. And I was like, I don't know if I think about that. And then uh, Brian Evanson did a visiting semester and we became very close. And I was like, this is, this is kind of what I want to do. Like the way he's done his thing is like, he just does what he wants. He, I mean, he got excommunicated and shit like that. Yeah. He, mm-hmm. he does what he wants and has, has built like a kind of life where he can do, do the writing he wants. So that's um, kind of the, the path I vowed to follow. <laughs> I love him. Brian, come on the pod. Yeah. <laughs> Brian would be awesome. You guys should get He him. would be awesome. He would. Yeah. And he has such a unique situation at coffee house uh-huh that it just seems like i don't know that seems kind of like the ideal in some way where it's like he has people that are putting out his stuff and i don't know yeah he, he's i i actually have never read him but i just am familiar because i always see it's mm-hmm. like god damn how many books of his did they put out <laughs> this is amazing yeah well when i was in grad school like i, I was like I was like, I would just like to be able to write books. And it, if I could teach, that would be awesome too. You know what I mean? And that's that's what Brian was doing at the time. And he wasn't, you know, like, obviously he's not a household name now, but he he was like, he was not a literary world name at that time. And it, it's weird because I was, you know, I, I took stock a couple months ago when I was like really down on just about everything. And I was like, wait, that that's that's what I set out to do. I'm doing what I set out to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. It's so hard to remember that. Right. Like, it's so easy to just, I, I do that to myself all the time. I, you know, well, cause it's like, now that we're all on Twitter and you see what's happening for other people, it's like, well, motherfuckers, 
<laughs> I want to write a TV show, you know? Well, it, it, it is funny though. Cause like I was before you came on Christian, I was thinking, I was like, you're the, the position you're in to me, it seems enviable. Like, you know, teaching in a, in a, in a great writing program, writing the books you want to write. It's like in a lot of ways, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I don't know. It seems like that exact kind of writing life is so hard to achieve um, for so many people. Cause I mean, uh, you know, all three of us went to MFA programs. You have people that you went to school with who didn't end up even writing in a serious way, people who never really pursued teaching, whatever the path may be, but to actually make a life in, you know, in the writing world like that and be able to write what you want to write seems pretty special to me. Well, I would point out that like, I am definitely blessed. And I also got in like on, so every, everybody, particularly everybody teaching in a creative writing program believes they're the last generation. You know what I mean? It's like, mm. um, I remember like I was, I, I went to Syracuse to study specifically with Mary Caponegro, you know what I mean? And my, my first semester in the program, she was like, yeah, this is, this is almost over. Like, we're like, not, and not Syracuse's program, but like what, what we're doing in the humanities in general. Right. Right. And then oh she got coached for a, for a fucking endowed chair, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> for the very next semester, you know? And it's like, oh my God. Uh, I think part of this is, is like, I do worry about the humanities because I, I think the humanities has something to offer the world in a non utilitarian way. I think it's mm -hmm. just to be part of what we do, but, but, uh, but it's also like, I've come to realize as a person in the profession, which I didn't realize until I was on the tenure track, that that we always feel like this way. It's always doomsday. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, you know, it's like I, I have to acknowledge that I'm blessed. It's like the a lot of the way I end up in the place that I am is luck. It's like and like. And, and a lot of it revolves around Chicago in a weird way. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I'm, I, I came here from Philadelphia and yet it's like the fact that I had had like uh, randomly good press in Chicago made me look in some way more appealing. <laughs> 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 you know, it, it's, it's very strange. It's a, it's, a, it's a weird world and I'm, I'm very lucky in that sense. But at the same time, on the writing level, I tell every one of my students, most of whom at this point don't want to be teachers anymore. They just mm -hmm. want to write. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. that, that if you stay in and stick to what you believe you, you need to do, you can do it, you know? Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Do you feel like Chicago is a particularly supportive or choose your adjective writing <laughs> community? Um, or do you feel like you know, there's a similar kind of scene in Philly, a similar kind of scene in New York, Boston, whatever. Uh, no, I, I feel like Chicago is massively unique, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, like, uh, my wife and I moved to Philadelphia after I finished grad school, well, after both of us finished grad school, um, because I said, you went to grad school where you did because I was at Syracuse. So you get to choose where we go next, but I cannot live in New York City. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm um and so we went to philadelphia and it was awesome there it was like it was cheap the arts were like were were wild and catherine my wife was um 
really, really well regarded as a choreographer, which is what she, she was doing at the time. And it was like, it was great. Oddly, there was actually no scene of fiction writers there at the time at all. Hmm. Um, I um, made a joke on HTML Giant in 2010 saying that Philadelphia didn't have a fiction scene. And uh, Lee Klein replied, there are oh. six of us and we played doubles tennis together. <laughs> so, Where is Lee Klein now? He's still there. And, wow. And that's the thing. He introduced me to uh, Tom McAllister and Mike Ingram. Oh. And, and, and so then, and then uh, we got stuff going and that's when I met up with Sarah Rosetter and we started Tire Fighter Reading Series, which is still going. Um, but yeah, was, Jamie does it now, right? Jamie's awesome. She was yeah. my in, uh, when I was adjuncting, and and her book Manhunt is awesome, by the way. Mm. Uh, but uh, but like we, you know, it was like Philadelphia didn't have any infrastructure for writing, and it was um, something that we all had to build together. Whereas when I moved to Chicago, it wasn't just that it, that there was so much. It was that like the first thing I was invited to was like like Alexander Heeman had like his salon oh yeah <laughs> i was Holy like shit, yes like i was like this is a writer that i wouldn't ordinarily meet anywhere and then right. like Stuart dieback was there and like the french cultural attache to chicago was there you know? <laughs> <laughs> but like no one was like how many books have you published dude <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. so it's like a it's like nothing i've ever experienced you know in in the united states because the you either have these like tiny little communities or like this kind of like parochialism, which I, which is what I associate with New York, you know? Mm-hmm. I would love to hear you talk about uh, just a little bit, if you can, what you're working on now. And also here's my, my two-part question, <laughs> how you work in general, huh. what do you ha- what does it look like when you're sitting down to write? Um, right now, I, I actually, so I take, long long periods of time off after finishing a book mm-hmm. so I only started writing again in December I hadn't written in two years and I started writing in December and I'm working on a book that will make a massive liar out of me on social media it's got mm-hmm. that um uh it's got COVID it's got like um <laughs> cultural war you know what I mean it's, <laughs> Um, and it's basically just going to be me shitting on everything that I'm mad about at the moment. <laughs> Great. And Perfect. then in, in the third act, it's actually going to turn into a crime thriller. I'm very excited Ooh. for it. Ray, um, are you being serious? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. That sounds awesome. It does sound awesome. <laughs> very excited for it. So totally bomb. <laughs> <laughs> um, because re- remember, I wrote the oldest Volpa scene yesterday. <laughs> right. But you know. There's a place I mean, for everything. Okay? Yeah, have you thought about titles yet, Christian? Because I don't know. It's just you know, what's, you know what's weird, Alex. It's like, like I actually was like, why not just be blatant? But but that it would that would be a totally inappropriate title for the book that I'm writing. You know, what I mean? but I, let's just let's just do it flat out. But the the weird thing is, usually I do have a sense of a title uh, by the time because I'm a third of the way through this draft right now. I have no idea what I'll call it. I might, I might like be old timey and name it after the character or something. There you go. <gasps> I like that. <laughs> or you can just call it OV. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Or spell it backwards. Ooh, there you go. Alex and I aren't ready to let this go yet. No, we love it. <laughs> so you take long breaks. Yeah. And then what are you writing furiously after that? Have During those breaks, are you thinking about the next book? 
No. Okay. No, it, it's because like, I mean, like for me, when I finish a book, I'm like, I'm wiped out. Yeah. And sometimes I'll have ideas while writing a book that I'm like, especially for like short stories where I'll get kind of excited and be like, I can write a short story later or something like that. But I finished a book uh, early in the pandemic that uh, nothing happened with. Like I sent it to my agent and I've never heard from him again, you know? What? Um, oh, God. Are you serious? <laughs> I hope my agent's not listening to this right now. <laughs> well, we can scratch that. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's like, uh, you know, like maybe it was just bad. I don't know. But like, well, but like the thing is, is I wiped myself out on that and I just, I literally had no ideas. And I was like, I don't want to write. I'm just going to read books and enjoy my life. Um, hang out with my son. You know? <laughs> it's like, yeah. But, um, but like around like late fall of last year, I, I started really feeling the itch and I just had to, had to write again. It was, mm. that's, and what does that look like? Is it morning? Is it any time? Oh no, it's, it's, uh, Catherine, my wife, is like, uh, um, she knows that I like to hang out with the fam and stuff like that. But sometimes she'll just be like, you, you get an afternoon. Like, it's more like I get kicked out. You know, like, go, to, go to the coffee shop and write. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. Do you feel yeah, a sense but, of guilt taking yeah, the time? Yeah. And that's, I think that's what makes the writing good, honestly. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> like, you get two hours. Go do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I very much relate to that. It's like, I can fit this in when my family's asleep or mm-hmm. like the odd day that they're all at school <laughs> or not at all. Well, Christian, um, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, this um, was great, Christian. Thank you. The book is The Apology. Everyone should read it. And read we, should it. All, we should all then get on Twitter and talk about it. It's, it's off of Astrophil Press uh, at the University of South Dakota. And um, it is, I think it's like 177 pages. Yeah, 177 pages. No fat. No fat. You're going to fly funny. through it. Oh, wait, yes. wait. Before, Sorry. Before Christian leaves us, you have a, bur- a blurb from Paget Powell that made me laugh <laughs> so fucking hard. I'm going to read it real quick. And then if you could just tell me any story behind it. I, all right, I'm going to read this. I am the blurber and you the blurb that, and beyond that truism, we shall askew the literary within this utterance. The apology is damned weird business. To attempt explication is to sound even dumber, but who cares? I do not mean the typical pushed strange weird. I mean the weird of the pushed banal, the mundane taken to some kind of fascinating negative power. If you want some damned weird business, take Mr. DeBordo with you. How the hell did you get that? <laughs> you know it's funny um paula is paula is my favorite living writer right and i had never approached him before um even though uh several people that i'm close to are close to him i was just like at, like i'm just gonna let him be the like the god in my mind that he is you know what i mean mm-hmm. and um finally i was like with this book i was like there's there's a there's a good deal of overlap between what we do mm-hmm. and so i was like i'm gonna and I ask him, and I actually told him, like, you know, uh, I mentioned that my wife is not really into contemporary writers for the most part, uh, particularly male writers, um, but mm-hmm. like, she loves Patrick Powell as well. Um, and like, there was a there was a period where we considered naming our son Paget, honestly. Oh wow, wow! Like, and so like, I, that's how I introduced it, and I was like, <laughs> if this sounds weird, also like, 
you know, Adam Levin is my closest friend and, and he can vouch for me. And Adam is friends with Powell and stuff. So Powell got back to me and was like, uh, you know, I trust you, but also like, I'm, I'm functionally illiterate. He actually like wrote this. He's like, I could barely read. What? <laughs> and no one wants to run my blurbs. And I, oh I replied, I was like, fortunately, like I, I write for small presses. So I, they, they will run what I tell them to run. <laughs> <laughs> And so I was like, I will not change a word of your blurb, dude. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> That's amazing. That is amazing. Oh my God. I had to ask about that. I'm sorry. I love, I loved that. Love that. Blurb. I feel like every story I've heard about Paget Powell is wild. Oh my God. I just, I read the interrogative, I can't even say the word, interrogative mood like two or three months ago. And I had never read Paget Powell before. And I was like, how have I lived this long and not read him? I felt like it was like so up my alley, so goddamn funny. I mean, oh my God, he's great. Well, he's, he's also hilarious because he was supposed to like carry the mantle from like the, the mid-century narcissists. You know what I mean? It was like Bello, Bello was like, this is the next me. You know what I mean? And, oh my God. and then he just got weirder and weirder to where he's writing <laughs> questions. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> unbelievable and and thus shall be christian to bordeaux's legacy as well (laughs) (laughs) anyway thank you thank you thank you everyone read the apology and then at christian on twitter That was good. Yeah. It's full of um, like wild moments and mm-hmm. um, pee. <laughs> Lots of pee. And, and uh, chain restaurants. Oh, yes. We got an Applebee's, a Chili's, something Subway. Else. Subway. Oh, my yep. God. The Subway. Mm-hmm. How could I forget? Did yeah. you know? I mean, how, how much Subway have you eaten in your life? Let you me know, open with to, that. Okay. I haven't eaten Subway in probably a decade. Okay, but, but, but before that, it, yeah, I used to eat it. I'd say like once every two, three months. Okay, so you're familiar. Mm-hmm. So they have a sandwich called the Sub Club, you know. Okay. And it used to have turkey, ham, and roast beef. Okay. Fuck! I can't even complete my my thought. <laughs> oh, I remember now. It doesn't have roast beef anymore. What does During it have pand- instead? Bacon. Oh, because during that's the a totally pan- different thing, it's a different sandwich. During yeah. the pandemic, roast beef got too expensive, so they're like, "Fuck it, we're putting bacon on there." But they still call it the same thing. Yeah, still so no. I swear no. to God. Yeah. Oh yeah. It should be called like the, um. What should it be called? <laughs> Please tell me. <laughs> Wait, it's turkey. What else? Well, it was turkey, ham, roast beef, and now it's turkey, ham. Wait, is it turkey, ham, bacon? That's fucked. Yeah, it's like it's like ham squared. It's like ham squared. That's what it should be called. Turkey ham squared. TH2. It's it should be called you're gonna take an enormous shit in about six hours. Um, in about six hours, set your watch right now because <laughs> here it comes. Uh that sucks. Yeah, they should definitely rebrand that. Okay. Yeah. Can we uh can we actually just scrap the rest of the episode and just make it that little subway clip? Because I think I feel like that's important for people to hear. That's who we truly are. Oh, yeah, no. (laughs) But I I think they know that. (laughs)
they know i mean they know especially that i'm just a fucking pure idiot just no 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 they definitely no, no, think no, no, no. more about me <laughs> mm, let's put up a poll i went out to lunch with a friend last week and she was like where should we go you know like where do you want to go and i was like racking my stupid brain and i i kept being like olive garden olive in my head like olive garden olive garden olive garden so i texted her pot belly <laughs> and she was like at the same time at the exact same time she was texting me options that are like you know local actual good restaurants sure sure she was like oh okay sure pot belly and i was like no no, no for the love of god let's do your thing <laughs> i want to go somewhere else yeah so oh my god that's awesome. i i was in the real world this week it was wild <laughs> quite wild i love it yeah um yeah that i had a great time reading the, uh the apology me too and like i told christian Stephen florida came to mind a lot as i was mm-hmm. reading because um it's another like weirdo loner talking to you mm-hmm. but it's a much different much different book um mm-hmm. i would say Tam- it did feel close to tampa in some ways yeah. to me it's not, they're not, you know, it's not the same book, but there is a kind of level of obsession and level of, I don't know. Yeah. And there's like a constant sense of like um, low grade bewilderment also, mm-hmm. because I think, which goes along with the philosophical questions that are raised um, by this, you know, this character who kind of studied, who lightly studied philosophy. Mm-hmm. Read the, the <laughs> The reference in the book, the the moment where Mike's like, well, no, I didn't actually read that, but I did yeah. read like the first paragraph of the Wikipedia page. I was like, yes. He's yes, like, Mike. yes, I like to go read is, what is it, Hegel or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> actually, no, I never do that. Um, <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, so it's 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 definitely its very own thing, mm-hmm. and it's got a five star rating on on Goodreads right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, everyone, so put that in your pipe and smoke it. I feel like I say that every week. <laughs> You too? I don't think I've ever heard you say really? that. No. Oh, well, I'm God. saying it in my head. Olive Garden, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Sure. Um, um, what else you got? Anything? Now I'm reading Isaac Butler's book, The Method. Fuck yeah. Yeah, man. And um, that's great. And it's making me, because I'm at the I'm at the very beginning where um, Nemirovich and Stanislavski are talking, are creating their own thing and completely reforming Russian theater. And um, it's like making me feel like we have to do that for publishing. <laughs> we have to do something. Yeah. Oh God. But I don't yeah. have the time. So someone else do it. Oh yeah. Neither do I. I have too much hockey to watch. Yeah. You know, like I have maybe like 30 minutes to myself a day and mm-hmm. that's when I take my subway shits. Sure. Me too. I actually <laughs> save them up too. It's cool. <laughs> I just have a brief window for my SS's and I just take care of them. <laughs> in one go oh i'm also um listening to scoundrel which sarah is by sarah weinman and it's about um this this guy edgar white who killed someone in the 50s and then convinced william f buckley jr and this alfred a knopf editor that he was innocent whoa um and got out of jail and it's great it's so great and um it's you know I'm, i'm i'm in my listening to true crime books phase mm-hmm. and she's such a great true crime writer i'm I, what else did she write why does that name so familiar um the real lolita okay right and that was just a couple years ago right yeah i don't think it was that long ago okay and she's also the new york times crime book true crime book editor i think damn or crime books i i, I think it i think it's true crime but it could be 
it could be crime fiction too I'm not sure um but she's so great and um such a pleasure because like the last book I listened to is not <laughs> it was that when the killer calls by the mind hunter guy mm-hmm. and he's not a writer and he's you know mm-hmm. old school so it's it's just it's been great good are you reading no I'm gonna you know I'm gonna read the method but other than that no yeah the method's great I um I studied the method for a brief time in my youth oh I remember I need you to really like bring those stories for the for the for the Isaac episode you need to like really like do a seance and like get back in that in that zone I will I absolutely will and he Isaac actually studied actual acting (laughs) he wasn't like a joker like me so I look forward to making an ass of myself but he is a joker I mean he's also he's also willing to make an ass of himself so I think we'll get along great we're just gonna out ass each other Mm, classic out assing sure (laughs) oh god and and we did it we did it all right talk to you later yes you will bye bye i'm a writer but is recorded by alex hickley and me Lindsay hunter in our respective basements editing by Lindsay hunter music by max loop yeah yeah